Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here wanting to welcome you to my series on Ruth, The Big Little Love Story. We're going through the Cinderella story of the Old Testament in six weeks with two amazing characters, Ruth, a Moabite gal who was widowed, Boaz, an older, wealthy, affluent, single guy, they fall in love, get a little bad counsel from a gal named Naomi, and God works it all out so they can get married, have a baby named Obed, and through him would come another guy you might've heard about, his name is Jesus. You're gonna love this love story, and I thank you for your prayers, I thank you for your support and your gift of any amount as we get God's word out to God's whole world. Thanks a bunch, Pastor Mark out. Death, devastation, destruction. That's where the book of Ruth begins. We find its conclusion today. But death, devastation, destruction. The book opens with a series of funerals and we see the testimony of God's people and the book concludes today with a wedding. And this is God's storyline, not only for the book of Ruth, but for the totality of the scriptures, all of human history. And by God's grace, I hope and I trust and I pray for your life and your legacy. It's starts with tragedy and it ends with triumph. It starts with misery and it ends with much rejoicing. It begins in utter darkness and then the light dawns at the end. It goes from weeping to celebrating and that is the story of Ruth. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of human history and that's the story of our lives and legacies. If you've got a Bible, go to uh, Ruth chapter four, verses 13 through 22. And these people at the beginning of of the book find themselves absolutely devastated. They're financially devastated. It has been an economic downturn for a decade. They are so impoverished that there is literally not food to eat. Have you been there? Are you there? You don't have the money to make ends meet. They were additionally broken relationally. They moved from Bethlehem, their hometown, all the way to Moab, a place that God's people were not supposed to be. As a result, they were away from family. They were away from friends. They had no emotional support and they were devastated relationally. Have you been there? Are you there? In addition, they were devastated spiritually. In leaving God's people in presence, they had not been to church for about 10 years. They had not been under Bible teaching for about 10 years. They had not joined together with God's people to sing God's praises for about 10 years. They were spiritually dry and devastated. Have you been there? Are you there? In addition, they were devastated maritally. They had three bad marriages. Elimelech was married to Naomi. They did not have a good marriage. In addition, Malon and Kilion, their two sons, married to unbelieving women. They had broken, uh, burdened, bad marriages. Have you been there? Are you there with that kind of family strain and strife? Add to all of this and they were devastated physically. The father who moved his family in the famine from Bethlehem to Moab, Elimelech, he dies. And then his two sons marry unbelieving women and they die. And there is no plan, there is no preparation, there is no provision. There is no financial or spiritual preparation for these widows in any shape or form. There's just three funerals, they have no one, they have nothing. It's as bleak, as devastating, as dark, as hopeless, as grievous as possibly could be. 
And when you and I face these seasons in your life, maybe you've been in one, maybe you are in one, where it is a season of mourning, it is a season of weeping, it is a season of crying, it is a season of losing, it is a season of dying. The question is, what do we do? Whether it is physically, financially, relationally, spiritually, maritally, when death comes, the first thing is we have to call it so that we can face reality for what it is. We see this on television, for example, with shows where doctors will be working on someone who is struggling and straining to live. And when they die, they cease working. And everyone looks at the doctor and the doctor calls the time of death. There are times in our life when we need to just call it, this relationship is over, this job is over, this career is over, this marriage is over, this opportunity is over, the season of life is over, I'm calling it, it's dead. And then what happens is inevitably there is a funeral. There is acknowledging reality. There is coming to grips with the death or the loss of someone or something that we loved. And then there's an autopsy, investigating, looking back, how did I get here? What happened? What would I do differently next time? Lord, what lessons could you possibly have for me through this tragedy? And then there is a season of healing and grieving and lamenting and mourning, coming with God's people into God's presence and experiencing God's power for healing. And then there is the next season of life, that good endings allow good beginnings. And if we learn anything from the storyline of the Bible and the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus is that life comes after death that life comes after death, that Jesus dies and then he rises in newness of life. And one day we who belong to him, we too will die and then there will be life for us eternally. And sometimes there are things in our life that need to die. They need to cease, they need to stop, they need to be buried, they need to be grieved, they need to be learned from, they need to be healed from and eventually they need to be walked away from because life is what happens after death. And I want to give you tremendous hope because these people suffer through tragic, devastating, cascading loss after loss. And what begins in a funeral ends in a wedding. And this is their testimony. It's the testimony of an older woman named Naomi who buried her husband. It's the testimony of Ruth who buried her husband. It's the testimony of Boaz, a single guy with a good job. All you single guys, get a good job, keep a good job. He's got a good job. And then he meets a woman that he falls in love with. And that becomes today his bride, Ruth. And this is their testimony. And I want you to know that they have a testimony, that you have a testimony, that I have a testimony, that we have a testimony. And a testimony is very different than a biography. Our world is filled with biographies and biographies are what people have who don't know God. Testimonies are what people have who do know God. And a biography is this, I had a great obstacle, great suffering, great opposition, but then I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, I learned my lesson, I persevered, I pressed forward, I overcame, I saved myself, I fixed my life, I healed my wounds, I slayed my dragons, and I am my hero, and you can learn from my example, and you can follow in my wake, and you too can live in triumphant victory as the savior of your own existence. That's a biography. Friends, we don't have biographies, we have testimonies. 
And a biography is about me, a testimony is about God, a biography is about how I saved myself, and a testimony is there was no way I was gonna save myself. Right, God showed up, God, God showed off, God spoke, God healed, God delivered, God provided, God heard, God answered, God grabbed me, God saved me. Yes, life did change, but I'm not the hero he is. I'm not the savior he is. I'm not the accomplisher of these victories he is. That's a testimony and a testimony is much better than a biography. Because if you tell your biography, you're just bragging. If you tell the testimony, you're worshiping by bragging on God. That's what a testimony is. And I want you to read this great book of the Bible. And I want you to see the testimony of these great glorious servants of God. And I want you to live for a testimony. And so the story begins with, thankfully, some good news. Here we go, Ruth chapter four, verses 13 through 17. If you're new, we like to go through books of the Bible. This is our final week in the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. So Boaz, Boaz is a great guy. He's a great guy. He loves God, his name means strong. When they built the temple, they put his name on a pillar. That's a good guy. He is single, he has a company, he runs his business very efficiently. He turns a profit, he's like the pastor at work. Everybody loves him, he loves them. He honors, cherishes, blesses women, including Ruth and Naomi. Boaz is a great guy. He took Ruth, That's, this is a Moabite gal. She grew up in a pagan godless home. Her family was a broken tragedy. Her, her, her ancestors resulted from incest where a couple of gals in Genesis 19 got their dad drunk and then had his baby. I mean, this is a devastated, confused, um, absolutely ungodly family line way down in Moab. And then Ruth, she meets God. She has an absolute heart and life change. And she makes the journey all the way to Bethlehem. It's about 30 miles. She's never been there. She doesn't know anyone there. She doesn't know what awaits her. There's a bit of racism. She might be rejected and dejected by God's people. But she's a woman of tremendous faith, astounding and exemplary character. So Boaz and Ruth, they got married, yay. She became his wife. We like weddings, right? Weddings are great. I got to officiate a wedding yesterday. It's so beautiful to see people who love God, love each other and enter into marriage. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Oh, it gets better. They get married and they have a baby boy. Then the women said to Naomi, Naomi is the older mother-in-law. She had a failed husband who left her away from God's people and God's presence with no provision. She said that in fact, she was bitter, she was frustrated, she was hurting. And now we see that God is in the process of healing and providing and delivering. And so she's got her gal friends around her, these female friends that are wise counsel and safe community. They said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, praise God, who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. How many of you, your in-laws could say that, right? How many of, you, how many of the holidays you're like, it's weird because I don't like them and they don't like me. And at least we agree on that. Everything else we disagree on. How many of you, your in-laws, you kind of feel more like they're outlaws, right? You don't really like them. 
Naomi and Ruth are not biologically related, but they're spiritually related. The son died, the daughter-in-law covenants to walk with the mother-in-law because they love each other, okay? They love each other. Do all that you can to love as well as you can your relatives and extended family. And, and what it says here is that Ruth loves Naomi. And Naomi's not the best mother-in-law, right? She's not. When, when Ruth said, hey, I'd like to go to Bethlehem with you, Naomi said, nope, go back and worship your pagan demon God. It's, she was like reverse evangelism, right? Not good. And, and then Ruth said, no, I wanna be with you because I wanna be a believer. And she says, well, I'm bitter. Call me bitter. I'm a bitter old woman, right? So. There you go, that's a biblical in-law right there. Just a bitter, mean, nasty, vile, godless, reverse evangelism kind of person. And Ruth loves her and it's Ruth's love that helps transform her. It's Ruth's love that helps transform her because everyone probably gets sick of Naomi, but Ruth continues to love her. And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance and it's God's kindness through us that leads others to repentance. It's gonna take a lot of warmth to melt a hard heart. And, and Ruth brings a lot of warmth to melt Naomi's hard heart. More to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Seven sons was a blessing. Seven sons was the concept of the perfect, amazing, glorious family. And what she's saying is, well, you could have had seven sons, but instead you got Ruth and Ruth is better than seven sons. Ruth is better than seven sons. The story continues. Then Naomi took the child. This is so good. This is so beautiful. How many of you are grandparents? Raise your hands. True or false, being a grandparent's amazing. It's way, it's parenting without the negative downside. You're like, oh, they pooped. That's some doubt. That's your, that's parental, not grandparental, right? It's amazing. You get to be there for all the fun. You get to feed them all the ice cream, but not deal with the tummy ache. It's amazing, <laughs> right? Grandchildren are a blessing. And here's Naomi. She was bitter. She was frustrated in chapter one. She said, literally, I'm empty handed. I have nothing. God said, how about a grandson? Oh, well, now my hands are not empty. She gets a grandbaby. Part of Naomi's healing comes with being a grandma. Her two sons never had children. And now Ruth is going to have a child and she's gonna be able to love and enjoy God's grace through the presence of a baby. Laid him on her lap and she became his nurse, right? She's like the nanny, she's gonna look after the grandbaby. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David. Now, a couple of things. Number one, how many of you are single? Okay, meet afterward, the coffee's free, good luck. Okay, welcome to the Trinity Church. Okay, if you're single, here's what I want you to hear. Singleness is better than sinfulness. Okay, singleness is better than sinfulness. Boaz was single, he's wealthy, he's got a company, he's successful, but what he's not doing with Ruth is dating, relating, and fornicating. He's waiting, worshiping, and watching. That's what he's doing. And Ruth, she is from a very corrupted family line, lots of confusion, lots of misconduct. She's broke, she's homeless, she's new to town, she's in a desperate place, 
but she's not sinning. Singleness is better than sinfulness. Some of you who are single, you will think, oh, if I could just meet someone, then my life would get better. Not if that relationship is sinful. It's better to be alone with the Lord than with someone else absent of the Lord. Ruth and Boaz are both walking with the Lord and then they walk together with the Lord. But it's better to be single than it is to be sinful. Number two, I want you to see this as well. There is hope for second marriages. This is Boaz's first marriage. This is Ruth's second marriage. This is not her first husband. Her second marriage is more loving than her first marriage. Her second marriage is more godly than her first. The second marriage is more fruitful than the first. I don't wanna get into the whole issue of divorce and remarriage, but I do want you to know this. If you are on your second marriage, there is hope for you, there is grace for you, and God is for you, not against you. And we see that in the story of Ruth, that, that her second marriage superseded her first marriage, so there's hope for second marriages. The third thing I want you to see in the story is that God has an intended order. Covenant, consummation, conception. We don't do it that way, right? We don't do it that way. But this is how God says it should be done. Covenant, they got married. They didn't live together. They didn't sleep together. They got married. Consummation, the two become one flesh. And then conception, oh, look what happened. The baby showed up. Okay, now, if you didn't do it that way, God loves you, we love you. There's no second-class citizens in this house or in God's house, but for everyone else, you need to know that this is the three-step process, right? Not like, well, we, we covenanted uh, conception. Uh, should we? That's backwards. It's complicated. Covenant, consummation, conception. Otherwise, you end up with chaos and crisis. God's way is still the best way. God's way is still the best way. And this older single couple, they, they do things according to God's grand design and plan. So that the child comes into a home where mom and dad love one another and they love the Lord. And that child is then blessed to be brought into a covenant family where there's life and love, where there's unity and harmony. Now let's look at all of these testimonies. First of all, there's Naomi, she's the older woman. Where does she begin the story? Hurting hurting. How many of you were there today? If you said, that would be a good word for me. Would that be a good word for you today? If you could pick a word, where's your heart today? Is it hurting? She was hurting. Her husband died. Her sons died. She's broke. She has nobody to pray with. She has no church to go to. She has no Bible teaching to lean into or to learn from. She's hurting. Much of the story, she spends her time healing, healing. First, by being honest about her hurting. She says, I'm bitter, I'm hurt. My life is ruined. I have no one, I have nothing. But I'm gonna go to God's people and I'm gonna go to God's presence. That's where healing happens. Healing happens with God's people in God's presence. That's the whole reason she makes the roughly 30 plus mile journey up to Bethlehem. That's where God's people are. That's where God's presence is. When she arrives, she is praying. 
She's talking to the Lord through her frustrations. And when she gets there, she is surrounded by women with compassion and empathy who love her and Boaz who is generous toward her. She finds inevitable healing with God's people in God's presence. And then at the end of the book, she's happy. Here she is. You can't think of a better picture than grandma holding the baby. She probably changed her name tag at that point. Bitter, I gotta take that off. That's not gonna fit anymore. She's happy, she's blessed. God's presence and provision is with her through her grandson Obed. How many of you, your story today is you're hurting and you'd like to get to happy. How do you get there? Healing. You need to have your broken heart healed. You need to be encouraged. You need God to be with you and you need to be with God. You need to have your heart funeral for a season. You need to be honest with God about the pains and the tragedies and the miseries, the devastation, the destruction, the disappointment, the confusion, the fear, the awkwardness, the shame. And then ultimately God can heal you if you're honest with him and you meet with him and you bring your hurt to him. She was hurting. She spent time healing. She became happy. If you're hurting and you wanna be happy, the testimony of Naomi is you need some time for healing. You need some time for healing. What about the story of Ruth? Well, her story begins that she is ruined. She's ruined. She's a Moabite. She's a widow, she has no kids, she has no money, she's a brand new believer, which means she's rejected in Moab, but she's probably not accepted in Bethlehem. She is ruined. She spends the majority of her testimony resilient. If I could think of one word for Ruth, it's resilient. Ruth is resilient. She says, I will go from Moab to Bethlehem. I'll leave my mom and dad. I'll go to a place I've never been with the people I don't know to worship a God I just met. I've got one friend and she's bitter and a little cranky and has no money and doesn't even want me to go with her, but that's what I'm doing because I wanna be with God's people. I wanna be in God's presence. She arrives in Bethlehem and she realizes God makes a provision in the Old Testament that the marginalized can go to the margins and they can be provided for through gleaning. So she goes out looking for a field she finds a field, it happens to be the field of Boaz in God's providence. And the Bible says earlier in the book, she works hard day and night. She labors, she works very hard. She brings home what she earns to feed herself and to feed her mother-in-law. This gal is altogether absolutely resilient. She doesn't give up, she doesn't quit, she doesn't stop. She does what is right and she wakes up every day and she simply says to herself, today I'll do what's right in the sight of God and tomorrow I'll do it again. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how this is gonna work out. I don't know what the plan is. I don't have a word from God. An angel didn't speak, a miracle didn't happen, but she just trusted there is a future for me and I'm going to find it and she just resiliently marches forward. The result is she goes from ruined to resilient to redeemed. God saves her and loves her and adopts her as a daughter and protects her and provides for her. 
And he brings along Boaz, a man who literally redeems her. He pays for the estate. He works out the legal way that he might become her husband. How many of you right now, if you had to pick a word for your life in this season, it would be ruin. Ruin. You say, I'd like to get to redeemed. Then the testimony from Ruth for you is you need to be resilient. You need to do the right thing in God's sight by the best of your ability every day. And when you fall short, you repent and you try again tomorrow. That's the story of Ruth. She did not stop. She did not quit. And there was a hope and a future for her. There's a hope and a future for you. But you need to be resilient. What about Boaz? Well, he starts in the beginning of the story, he's waiting. He's going to work, he's paying his bills, he's loving his employees, he's walking with God, he's waiting. He's an older single. He's not yet met the woman that he wants to spend his life with, right? There were probably many women that he could live with. He was waiting for the one woman he couldn't live without. He's waiting. And then in the middle of the story, Boaz's testimony is that he's working. He's working his job, he's turning his profit, he's building his business. He, he, he is all together trying to build a life in a future in which he can invite a woman and they can welcome children. And then all of a sudden he has this opportunity to marry Ruth. But the problem is he's not in first position legally. He needs to free up some capital. He needs to purchase the entire estate. He needs to earn the right to marry Ruth. He then needs to provide for Naomi. And this guy gets it done super fast. He is absolutely altogether motivated and he is working so that at the end, Boaz is worshiping. Lord, thank you tonight. I don't go to bed alone. I got a beautiful wife who loves you and loves me. Lord, thank you that it's not quiet in my house because my little boy's making noise. And that reminds me of your grace. How many of you right now, the story of your life in this season would be waiting. What's next? God, how will you provide? And you would like to get to the place of worshiping. The testimony of Boaz is you need to be working. You need to be pursuing opportunities, working your job, generating revenue, freeing up capital, putting together a plan and marching into your future. And this is the testimony of all of these people. And then who comes but Obed, the baby. His name means servant or worshiper of God. And I don't know if you caught this in the story, who named him? Did you catch that? Was it dad? No. Was it mom? No. Was it grandma? No. Was it grandma's friends? That's weird, right? How many of you wouldn't do it like that? Your firstborn kid. Hey, grandma, go ask your friends what its name is. That's weird. That's unusual. What I believe this is, I believe this is a prophetic word. I believe that sometimes God speaks through his people and here are the women who love God and they love Naomi and they love Ruth and they love Boaz and they're so happy to meet the baby. God gives them prophetic insight. His name's Obed, which means worshiper or servant of God. And so they name him Obed and he becomes a worshiper of God. He becomes a servant of God. Three things I want you to know. Number one, children are a blessing. That's what the Psalms say. Children are a blessing. Somebody say, they're also a burden. Okay, sometimes they're a burden, <laughs> but they're always a blessing. We live in a culture that does not see children and life as a blessing. Children are 
a blessing. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak life over and in your children. Don't nickname them. Don't curse them. Sometimes we think of cursing, we think, oh, it's a bad word. Cursing is sometimes literally pronouncing evil over someone. It's putting a curse on them. When you tell your child that they're stupid or they're ugly or they're lazy or they'll never change or they're incapable, you're cursing them. You're literally speaking death into the life of your child. What you wanna do is you wanna speak life into your child so that they can aspire to rise up, to be the blessing that God says they already are. My kids, it was a little joke in our house growing up. I would say, you're my blessing. They get a little older, like, Dad, you're still my blessing. I'll kiss them on the head. Some of them are too tall, so they need to bend down because I can't get there. <laughs> you're still my blessing. And I want them to aspire to what God has called them to be and do, a blessing to God, to us, to others. Some of your children are right now a pain, but they are still a blessing. And by pronouncing a curse over them, you are condemning them rather than encouraging them. You are shaming them rather than helping them. If you see your child as a blessing, then it gives you hope, not, not in the child, but for the child in God, okay? Man, when I hear the things that people say about their own children, and sometimes you think that they're not listening, but God knows your heart. The things that sometimes parents say about their own child when their child isn't present is concerning because it's revealing. Do you love that child? Do you have any hope for that child? Do you have any affection toward that child? They are a blessing. And they begin in the position of blessing. And Obed comes as a blessing and your child your children, your grandchildren, they are a blessing. All the children at the Trinity Church are a blessing. All of my children are a blessing. And we're on the brink of four teenagers, okay? So I speak that in faith. <laughs> but I wanna speak life into my kids and I want my children to rise up into what God has called them to be and that is a blessing. And Obed comes as a blessing. Number two, children are a legacy. The family line died with Malon and Kilion. And now there'll be a family line through Boaz and Ruth. And that this family line will continue, that children are not just a blessing, that they're also a legacy. Number three, I want you to know that being a parent or a grandparent is a ministry. Okay, how many of you are parents? Parents, you're welcome. How many of you are grandparents, right, again? It's, it's a ministry. One of the great lies that was told to a previous generation of pastors and leaders is this, if you will take care of the ministry, God will take care of your family. No. God has appointed your family as your first ministry. That if you want to evangelize somebody, start with those people sleeping in the bunk beds at your house. If you want to disciple somebody, start with the people that have your last name. If you want to build a ministry, start with your family and then invite your family to join you in ministry, okay? 
So you need to know this at the Trinity Church. I've had guys walk to me like, how do I be a pastor? Well, first thing is, be a pastor to your wife and be a pastor to your kids. If you do that well for a decade, we'll talk then. And if you don't do that, then I don't wanna talk because those are your first priorities. Those are the people that God has entrusted to your care first and they need the first and best of your time and energy. And sometimes we overlook our family in the name of ministry and the most important ministry is so close to us that we're not even paying attention to it, amen? So read the Bible with your kids, pray with your kids, pray over your kids, right? Invest in your kids, love your kids. And if you wanna bring your kids to service, you can. They can go to kids ministry, that's great. They can come in here. I had a parent come up recently, said, how do you feel about children that make noise? I'm glad because it reminds us that they're alive. <laughs> so if your kids come and scream, that's totally fine with me. We love children and God is a father and we are a family and we do see being parents and grandparents as first ministry, amen? First ministry. And we want this to be a legacy issue for you where you and your kids and your grandkids and your great grandkids know, love and serve the Lord Jesus. That's the testimony of Boaz, Ruth and ultimately their child Boaz. And then, or um, Obed, and then there's more good news Ruth 4, 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Okay, let's just be honest. How many of you don't get really excited about the genealogies in the Bible? You, how many of you are not like, yay, we're finally there. Finally, we're at the Hebrew phone book. I've been waiting for six weeks. We finally arrived. How many of you are like, why is that in there? Why did a tree have to give its life for the Hebrew phone book? Why, why are all these names of people in here? Why? How many of you love it? Because when you have a Bible reading plan, you're like, I just skipped those and felt like I covered some chapters, right? <laughs> this is a family tree. How many of you have looked at your family history? This is the history of God's family. And all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is profitable. Everything in the book is important. God doesn't waste any of his words. So we'll read it here. Here's the Hebrew phone book. Here are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab. That's a tough one. Some of you are like, Mark, how do you know you say it right? I don't, I don't. I say it fast and confident like a professional and I'm not sure I said it right. Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. What a good name, what a good name. And Boaz fathered Obed, be so fun to call him in for dinner. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered, ooh, would you look at that? King David, would you look at that? And I want you to see fathered, 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 fathered. Men, we, by God's grace, are the leaders of our home. And when God has fathers listed, he wants us to father physically by providing and spiritually by providing. Your family is your legacy. It's your opportunity. It's your responsibility. There are men who will rise up and there are men who will walk out at this word. I would encourage you to rise up and to think, okay, who are my children? Who are my grandchildren? Who are my great-grandchildren? And how can I 
love them, encourage them, serve them, bless them, invest in them, cherish them, father them. This is the crisis of our age. All of the problems that we are having socially can be traced to a fatherless generation that has not been fathered. They have not been loved, instructed, corrected, protected, and directed. It is fashionable to rebel against parents in general, but fathers in particular. Every sitcom on TV is to mock men, to make fun of men, to belittle men, to marginalize men. The children are watching television shows where the stupidest person in the family is their father and the movies have the pets as the heroes and the fathers as, as the adults. Okay. In this house, God is a father and we expect the men to be fathers, amen? Not mean men, not angry men, not violent men, not selfish men, not proud men. Men who have the Father's heart and men who lead physically and spiritually out of the same place that the Father leads them into life. When we hear these words, fathered, 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 I'm thinking of you and 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 you. Fathered. I want your kids and your grandkids to grow up and say, I was fathered. I was fathered by God who is my father and my own father and my grandfather. And for those of you who don't have this opportunity physically because God has not given you children, he in his great grace gives you the opportunity spiritually. As you share the gospel with someone, they are born again. There's birth. As you disciple, love, and invest in them, they grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God as Jesus did. That's parenting. That God gives us a double portion of blessing to father our own children physically and to lovingly lead others spiritually. This is my heart down to the roots. It will be deeply misrepresented, misunderstood, and misconstrued. But I want you to know my heart. My heart for you, my heart for us is a father's heart. It's a father's heart. I didn't intend to say any of that, but I hope you at least receive some of it. And here is the genealogy and a couple of things I want you to learn. Number one, your life might be a lot bigger than you think. Do you think when Ruth and Boaz said, hey, what are we gonna put on our target registry for our wedding? Um, what kind of towels will we have for the next decade? All these big life choices. Do you think that they anticipated that through them would come the King of Israel, who was a man after God's own heart, who wrote worship songs to God in the Psalms and got the blueprint for the building of the temple so that God's presence could be with God's people and together they could sing God's praises. I don't think that Boaz and Ruth were like, well, this is how it's all going to work out. They did not anticipate that this was the future God had for them. And they didn't live long enough to see it. Some of the most important work in your whole life happens after your life. You don't know what God is doing. I'll give you one example. The greatest theologian I believe in the history of the United States of America, Jonathan Edwards. He would get up every day, he was a pastor, and he would pray for five generations of his family. He was a man who was not just thinking about a good time, but a good legacy. 
I want all of us to be thinking not about a good time, but a good legacy. When you think about a good time, you end up with a bad legacy. When you think about a good legacy, God gives you a lot of good times along the way with your wife and your kids and your grandkids. A clear conscience in the sight of God and a strong relationship with your spouse and a loving relationship with your children. And Jonathan Edwards would pray five generations for his family and here's what happened. 13 college presidents were his descendants, 65 college profs, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 doctors, 75 military officers, 100 pastors, 60 noted authors, three US senators, 80 public servants, including one vice president. You don't know what God will do through you, through your legacy, through your lineage, through your physical and spiritual descendants of those that you raise up and invest in. You just don't know. And they didn't know. They didn't know. But now we know that God was working out his sovereign purposes and plan in history. And that if Boaz had acted ungodly or Ruth had acted ungodly, that ultimately the family line that brought us the great King David would have been altered. But because of their godliness, God honored their covenant, he worked through it to bring David. Now, let me give you an analogy. I've used this analogy in past teaching. Here's my illustration. Every time you read a genealogy in the Bible, think of a chain with links. Sometimes there's, there's a broken link. Malon and Kilion, two men earlier in the book, broken link, broken link. They, they, they married unbelieving women. They didn't demonstrate any faith in God. We never hear them pray. We never hear them say the name of God. We don't see them serve or seek God. They die, God doesn't give them children. Literally they're a broken link. Their family name, their line, it comes to an end, it's over. Well, before those broken links, there was their dad. His name was Elimelech. He was a very weak link in the chain. He moves his family away from God's people in presence. We don't hear him pray. We don't see the Bible open in their home. We don't see him pursuing godly women for his sons to marry. We don't see him making a plan for his family. He is a weak, weak, weak link in the chain. And as a result, the chain breaks with his sons. And then we see Boaz, true or false? Strong link in the chain. Strong link in the chain. Strong link in the chain. He loves God, he serves God, he's faithful to God. Naomi can be connected to him, Ruth can be connected to him. And then all of these people can be connected to him all the way from Obed to David can be connected. Boaz is a strong link in the chain. And then there is Ruth, she is, she's the first link in the chain. She's the first believer in her entire family's history. Nobody in her family ever knew or loved or served the Lord. She's the first. How many of you were the first link in the chain? You're the first believer in your family. I was, well, I was the first male believer. My mom knew the Lord, my dad did not. I was the first male to meet the Lord. We were a bunch of broken, bad links. The men in my family, violent, drunken, unemployed, mean, cruel men. And God saved me, first link in the chain. And then God did the most amazing thing. He saved my dad. And all of a sudden I wasn't the first link in the chain anymore, which was a really good day for me. One of the greatest days of my whole life. And then my brothers all got saved and my sisters got saved. And now they married believers. And now, and now there's generations and we all 
We all belong to Jesus. And it's a brand new family and it's a brand new lineage and it's a brand new future that God has for us. I got to baptize my dad in the Jordan River, the same place that Jesus was baptized. And then I turned around and we baptized my son, Calvin. And there were three generations of us in the Jordan River. And I thought something supernatural has happened today. God has taken a bunch of broken links and he has welded them up and he is building a new legacy. For those of you who are weak links in the chain, I want you to be strong links. For those of you who are first links, I want you to be strong links. For any of you who came from a believing family, don't be the broken link, don't be the last link. And through you, God wants to link on other men and women who know, love, serve, belong to the God of the Bible. That's the whole point of the genealogy. And it doesn't end here. This was written and, and, and was occurring roughly maybe about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Um, if, if you're new to the Trinity Church, you need to know this. This is the word of God. This is the only perfect thing on the earth. This book is for you, but it's not about you. You are not the center around which it orbits. The center of this book, the hero of this book is Jesus. That ultimately when Jesus comes, he says that he has come to not abolish anything that was written, but to fulfill it all. He has this argument with religious people and he says, you diligently study the scriptures thinking that in them you will find eternal life, but you've missed the whole point. The scriptures testify about me. That ultimately after he rises from death at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus hosts two Bible studies and he takes them through all of the Old Testament, including the book of Ruth. And he says, it's about me. It's all about me. It's all pointing to me. It's all leading to me. It's all yearning for me. It's all fulfilled in me. It's all moving toward me. Do you know me? Do you love me? Do you serve me? Do you trust me? He comes as the redeemer. The whole storyline is that we need someone to come and save us. And so Jesus comes and what's amazing, he comes as someone who is Jewish and he comes to Jewish people who by that time had become a bit religious. You know how religious people are? Here's how religious people are. Well, there's good people and bad people and, and we're over here with the good people and the bad people are over there. So there's heaven for the good people and hell for the bad people. And the people like us are the good people and the people like them are the bad people. And the reason that God loves us is because we're the good people. And he doesn't love them because they're the bad people. So a guy named Matthew comes along who's Jewish and he writes the gospel, the story of Jesus for the Jewish people. And he starts his gospel with a genealogy because the Jewish people right away, the religious people right away would have said, well, is Jesus the fulfillment of prophecy? Did he come through the family line? Is he of the right pedigree and heritage? Does he come from the, the right chain? Is he a good link or not? So here's how it goes. This is the gene, oh, I'm so excited. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David King. Oh, here we are again. The son of Abraham, our father in the faith. Okay. We're gonna compress it, just look at a portion. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's unusual. The genealogies list the men, not the women. It's unusual. I wonder why he would include her. 
Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, what? Whose mother was? What's she doing in there? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was? Ruth, this is Jesus' family. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. This is an awkward one. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's a weird way to say it. And this husband and this wife and this father and this other guy's wife, right? What, what? Hebrew Jerry Springer episode here. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who's called the Messiah, the Redeemer. Here's what religious people do. There's a line, good people over here, bad people over there. Matthew writes the genealogy, he says, your family's a mess. The best family is a mess. And God doesn't see good people and bad people. God sees bad people and Jesus, that's it. So all the religious people scoot over here. Over here with all the Canaanites and the prostitutes and the Moabites and the gal with clear heels and the guy who can't find his pants, go over there. You're over on that side of the line with those people. The rich people are like, well, we're the, bad, we're the good people. The rich people are like, no, you, you, you people are no better. There's bad people and Jesus. And, he, and so what he says is, he says that this family is not good. You know what? Your family, family's messed up. My family's messed up. Our family's messed up. How many of you have not looked at your family history because you're afraid of what you'll find? <laughs> Tell me about Grandpa John. No, not gonna do it, not gonna do it. Why not? You don't wanna know, you'll throw up in your mouth. Don't do it. <laughs> don't ask about Grandpa John. Well, who was his wife? Oh, I told you, don't start asking questions. My family is a disaster up until we met Jesus, okay? We were the O'Driscolls and O is for, oh. We were Irish Catholic, so welcome to mass, all my Catholic friends. Now, what happened was we lived in County Cork, Southern Ireland, and we, we had castles and we were fortified people and we were successful landowners until there was a change in government and then we were dispossessed from our land, we lost everything. And so I don't know what happened. The committee got together and we were trying to figure out our next employment opportunity and we ended up becoming pirates. I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how we got there. Like, okay, everybody in favor of agriculture? Nah, looting and killing. Oh yes, for sure, that's our thing. So, you know, so I'm Pastor Mark. So that's our deal. So, so we become, we become pirates, you know, pirates. And, and so we decide, you know what? We'll row out into the uh, Baltimore Harbor in Southern Ireland and we will see ships and we will kill the men working on the ships and we will steal the cargo. That's what we did, okay? We touched off an international incident. We went out and seized a whole ship filled with wine because we were pirates who liked to drink. And this sort of brought together all of our commitments. And so we <laughs> rowed out, we seized a ship filled with wine and we, touched off an international incident to where that nation actually came back, attacked Ireland and took people as slaves to repay the debt for the wine that my relatives stole and drank, not for communion, 
okay? My family is so jacked up. I have a cousin about my age, we probably will edit this out, but I have a cousin about my age. He's been on cops and he wasn't a cop, okay? Okay, how many of you, your family's like that? Okay, this family is a messed up family. It lists five women. Let's go through them. Tamar, dressed up like a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law and have a baby. Uh, Mark, keep going. Don't stop. Keep, okay, Rahab, Canaanite prostitute. How many of you wouldn't put that on LinkedIn? <laughs> Here, I'm left-handed. I can type 40 words a minute and I'm a Canaanite prostitute, right? Okay, okay, you don't feel awkward? I'll fix that. Okay, there's Ruth. She's a Moabite, whole family line of incest. How many of you come from a really messed up family? Really messed up. You're like, I don't know who my dad is. My dad's dead. My, I, I don't know. It's just, a, it's, it's all a mess. We're just a really confused people. That's the Moabites. How about Bathsheba? Okay, here's her story. Cause they're like, oh, we're the holy people and God let us build the temple. Through the child named Solomon, born to the man named David, who had the baby with a gal named Bathsheba, who was married to a guy named Uriah, who was a soldier off protecting David and his kingdom. And David is up high and looks down and there's Bathsheba taking a bath outside. I don't know why, but she's taking a bath outside. And David thinks, well, I'm gonna be with her. So then he seduces her. He commits adultery with her. King David, the man after God's own heart who wrote the songs of the Bible, he goes down and if you saw the veggie tales, it wasn't a ducky, <laughs> was not a ducky. He impregnates Bathsheba, and then he's got this dilemma on his hands, like her husband's off at war defending me and she's pregnant. How am I gonna fix this? So he brings Uriah home and he decides, Uriah, come home on furlough, be with your wife. He's hoping that they'll be together. And then when the baby is born, he can be like, oh, congratulations on your beautiful, lying, corrupted, adulterous family. That's what he's hoping to pull off. And Uriah is such a good man. He's like, no, 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 all my, my brothers are in battle. They, they can't be home to enjoy the comfort of their wife. So I will not be with my wife. Oh, David's like, oh gosh. Well, I'm gonna suffer, he's gonna suffer. So definitely he's gonna suffer. So he comes up with this plan. Okay, everybody run out to battle and don't tell Uriah that then we're all gonna retreat and leave him there to get slaughtered so that I could take his wife. David, David, David. And then there's Mary, a young poor woman who had a bad reputation and everybody thought that she cheated on her fiance and that her son was an illicit, illegitimate, out of wedlock birth, but he just happened to be God. <laughs> what is God saying? God's saying, everybody's welcome in my family, if you'll be honest. I'm a sinner, I come from sinners, I got problems, we all got problems. There's bad people in Jesus, he's our redeemer, we all need him. I don't care what your family looks like, Jesus will take you. I don't care what you've done, Jesus will take you. I don't care what you did last night, Jesus will take you today.
that he comes to build a family of some really messed up people. And here's the good news. God wants to transform your life and your legacy. He does that physically through your children and grandchildren. He does that spiritually because for example, Naomi and Ruth are not biologically related. Some of you don't have children. Um, Naomi was not biologically related to Ruth. She was spiritually related. And she did invest and pray for Ruth. And as a result, Ruth became like family to her. It is so glorious and good of God that he would give us a double portion of his blessing where he could change our life and give us a legacy physically through those that are related to us by blood and give us a legacy spiritually by those who were related to us by the blood of Jesus. Those that are born into our home and those who are born again through our influence. God loves you. God cares for you. God knows you. God knows your family. God knows your future. God wants to love you. God wants to embrace you. God wants to forgive you. God wants you to put, God wants to put you and I in his royal family line. If there's room for these people, there's room for all of us, amen? And the story of the Bible is that there is a redeemer and his name is Jesus and he has come and done the impossible. He has caused us to be people who experience transform lives and legacies for all eternity. Okay, if you don't know Jesus, this is where you give your life to Jesus. If this is where you are suffering and hurting, this is where you come to Jesus for healing. If, if you are broken and burdened, this is where you come to Jesus to have a funeral for your old way of life and to move forward with a brand new life. I love you with a father's love. It's a great honor to teach you God's word. And I thank you for allowing me to teach you the total book of Ruth. Let me pray. Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit to be with, in, through these people. Father God, I thank you for your heart, your heart for your people. Um, I thank you for sending your son for your people. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying to us the finished work of Jesus. God, thank you so much for the story of Boaz, the story of Ruth, the story of Naomi, the story of the family line that includes women, some of whom were ungodly and some of whom were godly. It includes men, some of whom were godly and some of whom were ungodly, but all of them were sinners and they all needed a savior. Lord, I pray for this spiritual family that it would be strong. I pray for those who are like Naomi, that they would find healing, that those who are like Ruth, that they would find resilience, that those who are like Boaz, that they would be fruitful in their working. And Lord Jesus, thank you so much that as we read the names of people, that we know that there is a book written in your presence that has our name in it. And we are part of the family line. We're part of the royal heritage. And we too, Lord God, have been brought into the family of God in Jesus' name. Amen.